0: To another episode of the Sticks and Blades podcast, I'm your host Doug Marsh, and my guest today, he's somebody that I've been watching for a long time. The first time I saw this brother was on a show called The Deadliest Warrior that was on Spike TV. He's one of my uh, brothers, in Piketty Tertia, and he's the founder of the Piketty Tertia Tactical Association. Welcome to the show, Tuhan Jared Wiongi, How you doing I'm today, sure. sir?
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me on. Hey, no doubt, man. I appreciate you coming on. So I like to do a status checkup with everybody. Uh, I know that COVID nineteen's been crazy over the past year or so. So, how have you and your family been doing?
1: Uh, okay, R- relatively speaking, you know we've um, the, the the brunt of it. You know, as soon as the, the the pandemic hit and the quarantines and whatnot and all the a lot of unknowns, that was the worst of it. And um, you know, it's it's we're, we're, we've adapted to the new norm. You know, it's it's run through um, actually some of my my uh my family myself included um late last year and so um we you know we got through it without, it was without too much problem and um the kids are in school here locally it's it's kind of a modified school um uh, schedule but they're in school so relatively speaking uh, you know, we've been we've been luckier than people in other parts of the world and other parts of the country actually
0: yeah absolutely man are things open up over there in utah like in texas
1: they're, they're mo- I mean, things that are. most businesses are open, restaurants, you know, are open with limited seating capacity, you know, just trying to keep space between the tables and gyms are open. They, you know, most gyms have kind of these strange regulations. you got to wear a mask to come in. But as soon as you start working out, you're allowed to actually take them off. And they've got these, you know, these rules. It's, it's more of like a, it's become kind of a ceremony. It's like you have to enter with a mask you know, and then as soon as you start working out, it's, you take them off, it's, it's, there's not a whole lot of sense to it, but, you know, it's just one of those things, you got to try not to stir the pot too much, and just, yeah, you know, if you want to have a, live somewhat of a, go about your daily activities without too much trouble, but, um, you know, most things are, are pretty much businesses as usual for most businesses, I'm sure there's some businesses that are still having um, issues that, um, out there with regards to how, uh, how the pandemic is affecting them, but, for the most part, you know, most things are, are up and running, at just in limited capacity.
0: Yeah, good, good. Well, I always kick things off with a leadership question, and the question is, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: Um, for me, leadership is—I uh, you know, would define it as. Um, uh, well, I, I'm not sure if it's much of a definition. How, yeah, you know, some of the principles of leadership, I guess, I would say are one. Um, humility you know I think that's a big that's a big part of leadership being able to um, not put yourself above others that you may be in a position to lead uh, even though you may be so long as um, there's you know there's it doesn't lead to insubordination in, in I guess you could say or, or, or um, you, you lose your credibility as a leader but if you've got that credibility you've got that position as a leader if you're able to um, not not like um, literally not think of yourself as being better than anyone, uh, not just try and act that way, but believe that that's the truth and that you're just, you know, you've, you've just got experience and skills that are going to help p- guide people on their way. I think that's important because um, personally, that's one of the things I've respected in leaders, someone that um, is uh, able to uh, show you that um, they're just like you and that you, they can lead you to do better things. I think that's, a, and um, uh, leading from, leading from the front, leading by example, those are, big things for for me too not just you know telling people what they should be doing and or or or, uh, showing people what they should but you know more showing people uh what they should be doing by example and um, those are those are big uh, leadership principles for me um another one i would say is is um creating uh, an atmosphere and whatever leadership position that you might have you know whether that's in um, the martial arts whether it's in, you know the law law enforcement like where I've come from my like professional background or um, whether it's in a business um, you know there's uh, you know whatever whatever the case uh, might be that there's the, the principles of leadership are going to be um, uh, kind of the same and, and one of those one of the big ones for me is is fostering a, an atmosphere where in, you're helping individuals grow um, and not creating you um, Blockades for them, I guess you could say, not not creating creating you know glass ceilings for how how much they can grow, but uh, fostering a, a, a fostering a um, an atmosphere where people can grow potentially grow um, bigger than you. You know, if that, for me, if I you know, cause for me, I uh, if people if I can as a leader help people to grow, and even if they grow bigger than 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 me, that's that's a success on on my part. You know, if I if I'm able to accomplish that. And so, um, helping people to, I guess, meet their potential. Um, and, uh, you know, but these are all, qualities uh, uh, I could go on, but, you know, these are the ones that the forefront of my mind as you ask that question.
0: Yeah. So when did you, uh, realize that you had the skills to actually uh, be a leader?
1: Um, uh, you know, <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> I was probably quite young, you know, when I, when I started to, to, you know, just, just when you're those, those, um, you know, as a, um, you know, as a as a young man, when I started to, to to see that people were looking to see what I was doing, and and, and were um, and I and I had some ability to to um, help uh, people to to grow, to do things that I was trying to get them to you know to get them to do. I was probably, I was quite you know I would say my late teens is when I kind of realized that I, I had a knack for that. Um, I, but I, at the same time, it's kind of difficult for me to say that even because I I, I like to remain humble. You know what I mean? So I don't like to. Right my own horn <laughs> and uh because that goes against one of the leadership qualities that I believe in. But having said that, I i, I did recognize that at quite a young age that I had some some ability to to lead people in, in various capacity.
0: Okay. So I've been in the martial arts for about 20 years or a little over twenty years now. And I remember back in what was it ninety-nine or so or two thousand going on the internet, the limited internet at that time, and I see this grainy video of uh bill mcgrath and and grand tuhan they're flowing they're doing a spotty dog or something like that and i started looking into what the fma was and from that point i got hooked i mean i i I had to find somebody that did something similar to that and it wasn't until a couple years later maybe four years later that i found tuhan leslie buck and i you know i began training with Les. um but what was the thing that drew you to the filipino martial arts and pikiti tertia in particular?
1: For me, it was kind of—I guess you could—I mean, the roots of it, I guess you could say, was kind of divine in nature. So, um, as a very—you know—and when I was twenty years old, I I, um, went to serve uh, as a volunteer missionary for my for my church, and it was a two-year mission. And um, young men in my in my of my faith um, that go out to serve a two-year mission—we don't choose where we get to go—and I was sent by the leadership of my church and and we which we believe to be divinely inspired but i was sent to um the philippines and uh that was 1994 and and so when i went there and and prior to going there part of my you know my interest in hobbies as as a as a youth was uh you know the martial arts and so going to the philippines i i was you know intrigued whether they had martial arts in the philippines i had no idea before i went there, but I, I thought, you know, there's got to be something, you know, this is part of Asia and, and whatnot, and um, and back, this is pre-internet, you know, this is, I, I went, I left in 94 um, January to the Philippines, that was before there was the internet, and and I was in pretty backwards parts of the Philippines too, so as the internet started to come around around that time while I was in the Philippines, I, I wasn't aware of it, so I, I didn't really have the means to research You know the Philippine Filipino martial arts, but I asked around while I was living there. I lived in maybe six different towns over the course of two years uh, throughout Central Luzon, and I asked around and and um, you know came came to uh, the the, to the knowledge that there were martial arts, and I even had the opportunity while I was there for those two years to find people that taught um, Filipino martial arts and and get an intro. What I would call an introduction. I wasn't in a single town long enough um, to really get deep into. Any particular uh, training um, uh, group but uh, and, and they were hard to find back then also in the areas I was living but I had an introduction to the Filipino martial arts and came home in 1996 and I had you no know, two things um, one was uh, I, I guess you say I love admiration and appreciation for the Filipino culture Filipino people in the Filipino culture I lived in very you know um, rural areas but what they call the provinces and learned to speak fluent Tagalog, you know, had, um, had a good introduction to a couple of other dialects and, and um, lived like a Filipino for two years uh, for the most part. And I um, and like I said, grew, grew a deep uh, appreciation for and admiration for the culture. So um, the fact that they had martial arts within the Philippines was a way for when I came home from the Philippines for me to kind of keep a connection there. And so when I came home in ninety six i I continued a, a journey of looking for opportunities to train in Filipino martial arts and and it was um shortly after that that I met um so this would have been uh, around you know late ninety six maybe ninety seven when I got involved with um, a branch of the um, of Tosha, which um, they were still kind of using the name back around then but it was the uh Another branch of the Total family, uh, Grandmaster Nene Total and his son, mm-hmm. Jericho, Jr. yeah Jr. And um, I met them in Las Pinas in Manila. And I, I went back on a trip to the Philippines and that's when I got into, you know, their version of, of Piquiti Tertia, which they later rebranded as Diquiti Terso Serratas
0: mm-hmm.
1: And um, and then it was around 2001 that I met Grant Tujon and, Changed my uh, training um, to uh, my primary, I guess you could say, um, instructor to Grant Tuhorn at the time. Um, large for, for several reasons. The large part was just the availability since he's, he started coming to the states to do seminars and whatnot. So yeah, and it kind of continued from there.
0: So with Dakiti Tertia, man, that's that's pretty interesting. I've seen it. I've seen like videos and things like that. You know, little snippets. Um, but I really haven't talked to anybody that ever trained it. What What are some of the differences between Dikiti and Pekiti?
1: Um, there's there's a, a lot of similarities, uh, obviously. Um, some of the biggest differences are um, the, uh, it, the methodology. And, and, and some, of, some of the differences were less in um, techniques than actual methodology. So um, in, in my training with Dikiti Tertia, there was a lot of emphasis on um, repetition of um, of attributes, of footwork, of movement, of of particular skills, kind of heavy on um, on attribute enhancement type drills. Simple, simple. The flow drills we did were not um, complex, but they were intended to build foot speed, hand speed, and coordination, and and very very um, short two three step flows back and forth. Um, there was, uh, I, I have you know, because there was a more it was a heavier focus on i um, building fundamental uh, contract combat attributes there was less dabbling in the um, Other subsystems that in, in my personal experience. So I, I can't yeah, you know I can't speak for anyone else's experience training in that art for me There was we didn't get into as many subsystems as we trained within the Kitty Tosha, but the sub the the, the the subsystems We did do we uh, we, we uh, spent a lot of time um, hammering in fundamentals and that was something when I first started training with Grand Tuhon that, you know we would do oftentimes too is hammer in fundamentals but then it would expand into um, uh, a broader spectrum of subsystems and then we and then with Piketty the, the tersha I felt that there, each, the subsystems uh, there was a deeper level of knowledge in those with with the way that we trained which is part of what attracted me to Piketty um, to tersha also
0: okay so when you met GT well before I even asked this when I met GT this is like back 2002 2003 you know i was starstruck i'm like oh god that's the guy in the videos oh god you know and you know he can command a certain level of uh respect he's a great orator you know he always gives that speech before you know seminars you know talking about this is in your bloodline et cetera. (laughs) and when you when you started training with him in the early 2000s i kind of call that like the golden age i mean because some of your peers uh were people like Doug Markaita, Leslie Buck, you know, you had Buddy Asinas out there, and you had other people that, well, I left out Kit, Kit Asinas as well, and and other people that now they're like, you know, major parts of Piketty Tertia. They've grown into, like, leaders. What was that like coming up with those guys?
1: That was, it was great. I mean, I I, um, I guess I, I've I always, uh, you know, I've always been, I guess you could say confident in, in, in the way that I've been able to learn and teach the art. But at the same time, I um, have always uh, held those guys that you had mentioned in the highest regard and, um, and, and was always looking to learn from them, too, because, you know, there was so much to learn in the art. There is so much to learn in the art. And Grant Tuhan sometimes would, um, with one particular instructor, he may spend more time on a particular subsystem. And so those people may have had the opportunity to more, learn more uh, or maybe he used a different methodology to train those guys so um you know i, I always um was humbled to be able to um, teach alongside them sometimes at conference and, and learn from them um at, at times also and it was just this great great um, yeah, yeah like you kind of call it the, the golden age And it's kind of interesting because it's um it, it, it's it's you could really look at it that way. There was a lot that was going on at that time. You know, Graham Tuchan had just started coming back to the U.S. on on a regular basis for seminars, and he was um, you know, was really active at the time, going around and spending a lot of time with different uh, instructors and 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 pushing pushing the art. So it was it was it was great. Yeah, I, I really I, I missed the. The times that we were able to get together and camaraderie and, uh, you know, hope, maybe one day we'll be able to, to, to do it again on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, man. And the thing about it, like back in those days, um, GT, he was in his physical prime, you know, so like he was just, you know, kicking ass all over the place and training for like 12, 15 hours a day. I've heard the horror stories, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like in 2002, Leslie, he had a he had a camp here in Texas. It was called the Texas Kali Mastery Camp and uh i went to the first one and that was crazy i mean we started training at like 5am and we didn't hang it up till like 10pm and you know you'd have these mental lapses where you'd be in the middle of a drill doing something and you'd black out and you'd have somebody else standing in front of you doing the same drill and you're like how the hell did i get here <laughs> but at the end of it you know you guys everybody came away with like very clean mechanics and like just a better understanding of the art overall you know so when you're over there in the Philippines with GT in those early days was it like the 12 hour training days 15 hour training days
1: yeah yeah it was it was like literally you know up at five o'clock on the beach you know but, and um you know it, it was kind of funny too because you know, he he was there, ready to go. Like as soon as the sun started coming up, he, he would be out there on the beach, and and, and you better be there too for those first few days. But you know, as the conferences would go on, um, and people, uh, you know, the fatigue would catch up with people. Plus, you know, a lot of guys were out late, you know, after after um, after dinner or whatnot, drinking and stuff, and so. The, the number of people that actually showed up on those mornings got fewer and fewer <laughs> and, and you could see uh, <laughs> this displeasure on Grand Troubon's face a lot of the time. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, it was really, interesting, you know, yeah, would be up at the crack of dawn and you'd be training hard out in the sun. You know, I remember doing drills on our knees on the beach and, and, and some of these beaches were like shell, you know, you had rocks and, sh- and broken shells on the beach and stuff. And, and you know you're you're, you're you know you're going to get blisters day one, so it's just a matter of healing mm-hmm. you know, heal in a day or two, so that you can kind of not not worry about the pain of uh, of blisters anymore. But um, and sunburn, <laughs> but, uh, right? Yeah. but you know it was it was it was interesting and fun time, like you said. There was this this very hardcore um, approach that Grant would would have to um, how he drilled. You know, I I, I remember. Private training classes um, that we would do at my in the backyard at my house here in Utah when he would come here and and um, you know and the same thing he would do at his when people would come to his house in, in Bacolod and I had the same experience basically you just expect to be hitting tires a couple of times right um, before, the, before the day even gets started so it's uh, that's uh, that hardcore approach like you said that was I think. That he Grant Owen taught more like that in his in his prime in his younger days when mm-hmm. um, uh, you know when he, he was uh, yeah, physically mm-hmm. little more able to keep up with that type type of a train, training training um, uh, schedule. But uh, it was good memories. But at the same time, it was uh, you know he, he, it, it was. Um, Things you, you don't really want to do again, particularly as you get as you get older. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but it was good times, absolutely, and you learned a lot of things, including the like you said, body mechanics, and, and there was a method to the madness. It wasn't just you know, hey, just go out and hit tire because I'm 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 disinterested in in, uh, in 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 teaching you. But it was, you came away with some solid solid um, uh, strike strike and body mechanics.
0: Yeah, GT. One time I remember here in San Antonio, he was here for about a week. And uh, he was teaching classes during the week. And I was like, OK, well, cool, man. You know, I'm going to come into this class. And I didn't know he was there this one time. You like it was a total surprise. And I just kind of came into class maybe 10, 15 minutes late. And I see him right there. Right. And he goes, Doug, you go hit the tire 500 times. <laughs> Went over there, had to beat the devil out of the tire. And I come back. You know, I'm in the middle of drills. He look at me. You were late. 500 more times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what person that I left out uh, was uh, Romel. Romel, you know, I've I've uh, trained with him maybe two times over the past like 10 or 11 years. And I know that, you know, early on, he was somebody that would provide a lot of the training uh, when GT wasn't available in the Philippines. Did you ever uh, work out with Romel or, or spend time training with him?
1: yeah I mean we, we would uh, unfortunately uh, so back in the, those early 2000s and you know early to early to late 2000s I would say between um, you know uh, around 03 to 2010ish um, and I would uh, I would go to the Philippines on on a yearly basis at least once a year to these training camps and um, oftentimes uh, you know Romel would um, he would actually after like two or three days of the training um he would pull me out of the camp and we would actually go to um, the, some of the, the military and police training camps together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he uh, we would take the opportunity because at the time I was, you know, I was, um, I was working on a, on a SWAT team at my police department and then in 2004 I got into the training unit at my department so I was a full-time use of force trainer and so um, they were taking advantage of that background that I had, being part of the PTK network. And while I was in the Philippines, we would go out and spend time with, at the time, it was, um, you know, the Marine Force Recon Battalion, we would spend time with the SAF commandos and the different, um, uh, uh, the different um, units with the SAF, um, the, what they would call um, Crisis Response Group, um, Sure Shock, and uh, we would be with um, the Anti-Hijacking Team and whatnot, and Presidential Security Group. Yeah. So go around these different groups, and we would um, give them, you know, training and not only uh, their hand to hand stuff, but the that they were training at the time. But I would do some firearms courses with them too, and so we spent quite a bit of time together I, 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 during those conferences because Grand Tuhon was actually present. Um, you know, uh, Romel wasn't teaching at those, but there were other camps um, around 2000. Um, it was it was around 2009 or 10 when they we started these regular Pacific. Um, they were calling them the, the um, Asia Pacific. Was,
0: yeah, Asia Pacific. Yeah.
1: And um, and then at those conferences we would come in and Grant Tuhon would break the group up. And so during those conferences, uh, myself, um, Leslie Tuhon, Leslie Tuhon, Romel um, Tuhon, Philip, and um, at, the, at the regulars at those camps, and then Tuhon um, Nonoy, so, um, the, the five of us would, 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 you know, the group would split up and do a round robin and they would spend time with each of us. Grant Toulin would always take the morning, the, the early morning session and uh, tie everyone out on the beach at uh, five, six in the morning. And then, and then the rest of the day he'd sing karaoke while the, uh, <laughs> all the rest of us were teaching. But because we were co teaching, I didn't really get a, a whole lot of chance to train. To train with him. I trained, I guess you could say, um, nearby him was exposed to you know, been exposed to Jeremiah's teaching us a lot over the years, but never really got a ton of chances of actually train uh train uh, train under him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so in in Piketty Tertia, there's always these misunderstandings, you know, people from the outside looking in, you know, like sometimes people think that we're elitist. <laughs> you know, we think we're better everybody or we're assholes or whatever and egotistical. And, you know, that's one of the misunderstandings I feel that's within Piketty Tertia. What do you feel are some of the misunderstandings of the art itself?
1: Um, well, I think a lot of the misunderstandings revolve around the Grand Master himself, Grand Tuhon. Um, <laughs> actually, you know, he's, he's I, I, I would, you know, from my exposure, a lot of the, you know, he's, it's easy to misunderstand the man. You know, he's, if you just knew him from social media posts, Right. You, would, you know, you would you know think this is some kind of a of a lunatic. <laughs>
0: it's yeah, like, it's totally different face to face.
1: It really is, and uh, so I think a lot of those mis- mis- misunderstandings revolve around the, the man himself, um, uh, and not necessarily around w- what and how um, uh, he, he's taught, because it's really hard to argue um, how how um, great of an instructor he is and how great of a system that he's been able to bring to the world. Yeah, uh, it's it's really hard to argue with that. I think everyone recognizes what um, Kitty Tursia has brought to the plate. Uh, may, I think some of the misunderstandings outside of what may revolve around Grant a way of expressing himself sometimes um, uh, come from um, his ability. And I, I attribute it a lot. Well, maybe there's two things now that I think about it. One is the generation gap between when he switched, check, basically changed his teaching methodology. Right. from you know, what, what was commonly referred to as Dose Methodos, and then uh, on his return to the U.S. in the, late, in, well, in the, in the early 2000s, he, he didn't teach that anymore, you know. Um, I, he, he just he did not, and uh, he, he changed his methodology, and what he called the tribe Formula, tribe methodology, and so um, uh, there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding comes from the fact that he did change a lot of his methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot some other misunderstandings and these are more internal misunderstandings I guess you could say but um, uh, uh, the fact that he would go to instruct you know so, he's got so much knowledge there's, there's, you know he's, he's just got so much knowledge and, and as he would go to different uh, instructors around the world he would teach um, he would teach to the individual to the individual ins- instructor you know this, right. This group specializes in, for me, he always saw me as the police and the military guy. So, you know, uh, because at the time, you know, 2005, I started a a military contract with the local special forces group, army special forces group here in Utah. And I, so I was running their combatants contract. So, you know, even though I'm not a military man myself, I was running military contracts. And so for me, he came to me and was like, hey, let's focus on, you know, police and military application of the art. He'd go to someone else and let's focus on some. Maybe some, you know, a little bit more heavy on the stick and, and so on and so forth, and pangamot and whatnot. And so, um, because he taught that way, some you know, um, some people would uh, say, you know, that they were teaching it right and that another Pekiri Tosha instructor is teaching it wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, in my opinion, if it came from, came from Grand Tuhon, it's not wrong. You know, he's the, he's the, he's the genesis of Pekiri Tosha as, it, as it's been presented to the world. And so, um, I use that as kind of the, the measure of what Pikini Tertia is. Uh, and, but I, I, when I teach, I always teach, hey, this is how I was taught. Um, and so, I can only speak to that. But, you know, I, I encourage people to train with other Pikini Tersha instructors because they may have been taught in a slightly different way or some slightly different things. So, you can learn from them also um, according to their uh, their understanding and, and experience in the art. So, that's, I think, where some misunderstandings in the outcome is uh, comes from is the fact that one person may have been taught a little bit of a different way than another instructor. And it doesn't make it wrong. It's just that that's the way it was given to them by grantee.
0: Yeah. And I've ran into that down here in Texas, obviously, you know, um, here in San Antonio, when I moved back here in 2003, I ended up at. Uh, well, I'll say his name one of uh, Tim Wade schools. OK, uh, he had an affiliate here. And, you know, they had they followed the dosi methodos or whatever. Right. So when GT was here, he would teach a specific way just to that group. You know, and unfortunately, you know, some of the members of, of that group, they <laughs> they had this this attitude that everybody else was doing it wrong, just like you were saying, you know, and then you'd go up, you'd go up 80 miles to Austin and you'd see GT around Leslie. It was like a am not going to say it was a different art, but they moved a little differently. You know what I mean? It wasn't the way that those guys looked. It it looked to me a bit more authentic, you know, in terms of what was being presented and it seemed more free flowing, you know, but um, you, you, you hit on law enforcement and that's what I wanted to talk to you about next. You know, I, I've had an opportunity, maybe like three or four different opportunities to train law enforcement. And, you know, I did, one little military outfit, not on the level that you're doing it, but you know it's like workshops and things like that and presentations. And one of the things that I ran into uh, was the fact that I I approached the military and law enforcement like the way I would teach a, a regular class, you know, and that didn't work. It was like some of my worst teaching outings. <laughs> you have people staring at you. They're like, oh, what? Why the hell am I doing footwork?" <laughs> you know so how would you end up coming up with, with your approach uh to law enforcement
1: yeah i mean it was really a, a, a learning curve because you know you' what you just articulated is a common experience and i and i and, and i understand it all too well and um the, the methodology that i teach has come from uh, essentially from trial and error you know i uh, and you know prior to becoming a police officer in two in 2000 i you know for Three years, I was living in Hawaii, Honolulu, and I was attending university there. And one of the ways I earned money to kind of you know make ends meet was I was working as a, as a bouncer in Honolulu at a nightclub. And so I had uh, the opportunity at the time to um, you know to actually put into practice a little you know a bit of what I was learning. But as I became a police officer, I I, um, I again had another learning curve because I now I understand I understood a little bit more about legal use of force, <laughs> and right, force right. as a bouncer and, and the application of that. And then, and then also, um, as I started being putting, being, so that was my personal, you know, um, uh, enlightening. And then as I became a, uh, and so 2004, um, I was, I, I got a full-time assignment to, to, to my uh, training unit. So I was now teaching defensive tactics to, um, new recruits and, and in service to our, you know, experienced officers. And, and so I, it was around then is when I really had to go through this evolution of okay, go, and that, that, that real, um, uh, understanding that the, what a, what a martial artist is going to learn
0: mm-hmm. is
1: a lot, you know, how and what they learn is going to be, should be completely different to how and what a, a police officer learns uh, because. You're taking, you know, and just to kind of put it, you know, uh, simply, you're taking you know, the police officer, you're taking someone that is not a martial artist. You're taking some, you know, generally speaking, 90, 95% of the time, you're taking right. someone that is not a martial artist, has had some background and some training in the police academy, but has not been had any ongoing uh, upkeep with that training. And so, um they and the time span that you're giving that individual to learn something is going to be short like like you mentioned it's going to be a workshop it's going to be a few hours It's going to be a day maximum sometimes sometimes i might get two days i've never had more than five days with um you know with the, with, with a group of officers i shouldn't say never but i with my department i ran a, a um uh, two five-day programs, phase one and two, that was, so it was 10 total days, and then they had some other training they had to do in between to become mm-hmm. an instructor for our department. So, but generally speaking, you've got very short periods of time, and so um, trial and error learning, like, uh, you know, I, basically, I, I, I simplified the goals that I was looking for into two things, okay? Can those officers walk away from that day that, I, that they had with me or that time with, you um, A skill set that they can use to a functional level. Okay, are they able to actually make it work? And is it simple enough that they will be able to retain that knowledge for as long a period of time as possible? Because these are perishable skill sets, and if they're not training them, they're going to lose it eventually. But for as long a period as possible, are they going to be a a functional and retainable skill set? And um, and those are the that's the goal, you know, that, that you're trying to meet, and so it's really just paring things down, simplifying things, really defining what you're trying, your your goal is by the end of the day, and and making sure that you're reaching that. And um, it was, uh, you know, and I went through police academy classes with uh, the recruits. Were you know, where I, where I would go through a class of recruits, and I was like, you know, that program, it was a little too much, or maybe you know, it was, it was maybe we could add it a little bit more here and there. So it was, a, you know, and then in 2005, I got a contract with. Green Berets, you know, special forces soldiers that had a completely different mission that they had to be trained for, and so I had to kind of go through the same learning curve for military operators, and um, and so that, that's you know from two thousand, you know, for, for about five years there, that's when I was going through this real deep trial and error of what you know what and how to teach in these types of environments.
0: Yeah, what's kind of scary, man, I remember I did a presentation for uh, the U.S. probation office and uh, the, the marshals, and there were about 100 of them there. And I'm in front of the room, I'm talking, and I already knew the answer to this question before asking. But I was like, by a show of hands, how many of you guys regularly train? Uh, two or three people raised their hand. And I was like, OK, uh, how many of you guys regularly dry fire your pistols? Five people <laughs> raised their hand out of a room of a hundred. And it seems like a, a lot of times these officers, they, they approach their job, you know, obviously is serious to them, you know, but it's more of just a job instead of something that they need to continuously work on as far as their skills. I mean, in, in your mind, what do you think is like an acceptable uh, level to where police officers should be training? Like yeah. you could, like if you could, like, should it be like a couple hours a week or should it be, you know, once a month or?
1: You know, um, it's I'm, I'm always of the opinion. My, 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 um, my, my opinion of that is not realistic and uh, not, not a realistic expectation because I, you know, if, if it was up to me, it would be, you know, um, like a couple hours a week, you know, but, um, right. you know, uh, more realistically, maybe a day a month. You know, and that might be spread out, maybe four hours, you know, um, every two weeks or something like that. Um, that would be an ideal scenario because if you look at SWAT teams, police SWAT teams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, train. I've been on three SWAT teams. Uh, currently, still am reserving on one, and and um, it might be um, a day a week, eight hour, a ten hour day a week, uh, like my first team that I was on. It might be one. Um, Ten-hour day a month. It might be like my current team is um, four uh, hours every um, two weeks, but they're actually expanding that to four hours a week now. So oh, nice. we've got a lot of new guys on the team, so they're trying to get up people up to speed. But you know, that's that's those kind of expectations are uh, are pretty normal and acceptable within you know law enforcement communities, uh, law enforcement agencies around the, around the country. You know, so, something similar to that. I, I think if we gave that much attention to our patrol officers and, and just in, in use of force training because really the SWAT team, you know, the SWAT team, that's the, the kind of the, the high threat, low probability squad, right? They're, you know, right. things when things really go bad, that's when you need a SWAT team and they need to be well trained. That's for high threat situations, but they don't happen all the time. They're lower probability. The type of use of force that our patrol officers have to use on a regular basis, that's high probability.
0: Right. Oftentimes, right. Every day.
1: Yeah. Every day. And, uh, you know, if you consider just handcuffing someone, that's a hands-on physical use of force and, and, um, uh, you know, and, and the, 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 chances of those things going bad are, are high and they happen all the time. Obviously, you know, there's what I would call high probability, lower threat scenarios because high probability they happen all the time, lower threat. They don't always turn into a fight, but they mm-hmm. do sometimes, you know, and, uh, and, the, and and the officer, as we've seen, has been kind of highlighted in the news in the in the last year. there's um, a need for officers to be better trained. It's you know in in, um, in how they um, and it's not like it's, it's I, I don't put fault always on an, on the officer when they make bad decisions under stress. Uh, sometimes it is their fault. Sometimes it's the fault of the agency they work for, for like not providing them the training that they need and that they should have to perform on a professional level within the capacity of their jobs and what we expect. Of them as the, as the general public. So, uh, I, you know, if we were able to give uh, our you know um, patrol officers the amount of training that we're allotted, that is a lot of, but that's it comes down to funding, right? If I'm taking mm-hmm. patrol officers off the street for eight hours a month, um, who's keeping the streets police while you know and and while a lot of departments and, and so the public expects you know a, a reasonable response to calls and and you know expect protection within the community. so. It just takes um, funding to get staffing levels to a to a level where you can actually start rotating people out, and and you know we're not leaving the streets unpoliced while people are in training, um, and then you know funds to make sure that our opposite our, our uh, police instructors are given the most professional training available, or they're able to pay to bring other subject matter experts to provide that training, you know, one or or, or a combination of both.
0: Yeah, and I, I worked eleven years in a detention center here, and. You're you're absolutely right about the training. I mean, some of the training that they provided was just I mean, it was it it was horrible, (laughs) you know, because they're always thinking about liability issues and things like that. What a stand up in court. And, you know, I've I've been at the end of the table for uh, going outside the standard of care, you know, Uh, and, you know, I think sometimes when when you look at police uh, and the things you see on see on TV, you're absolutely right about uh, when you're under stress you know, you you can't really fault anybody uh, for that because you're not there in that situation. But uh, do you think that departments could lean more on people within the department to provide the training instead of going out for subject matter experts?
1: Uh, I mean, it, de- it depends. Again, it's just if, if, if the department is allocating enough resources to get their trainers out to get that regular high level of advanced training... Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's possible, it's feasible, you know, um, larger departments, it, it might be more feasible because you've got a larger pool of officers to choose from who might be actually cut out to do that, to be a good instructor and a good trainer, whereas uh, some departments, you know, it, it, it might be slim picking. So, it, you, know, um, you know, in theory, yeah, if, not, if the department is, but it takes training, you know, I was in a, I was in that position, you know. I, if, if, an officer is not going to be, we can't be put on the training unit, and all of a sudden, is a master of all these different skills.
0: and <laughs> right. And you can't
1: expect the, um, the, the the state um, state post, you know, peace officer stands in the state um, uh, academy to provide the highest level of training. Also, so it takes um, funds to get officers uh, trainers out there, but then there's the problem of turnover, right? So you've invested all this money into this officer. And he's got all these different, he's got a high level of, 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 of ability, of, of instructor level to, to relay, relay knowledge to the officers throughout your department. And now he gets promoted and he goes somewhere else. And so now you got to start from scratch again. So from that point of view, sometimes it's more feasible to just utilize those funds to pay outside subject matter experts to come in and provide that training.
0: Okay. So with Pakiti Tertia or excuse me, Pakiti university, I, I had a subscription. I recently canceled it, unfortunately, because I just wasn't spending a lot of time. I was like, damn, this is pretty in-depth. <laughs> but I, I like I like the teaching structure that uh, you provide, man, the way that you start looking at the fundamentals, you know. So I always say there's three different schools of thought when it comes to Piketty Tertia. You know, you have the 64 attacks, of course, which I always associate with the early Piketty Tertia practitioners. And then, you know, you have the Dose Methodos, which, you know, is another line, and then you have Tri-V, you know. So how did you end up putting together your curriculum for Pequita University?
1: You know, um, I had to take a, a, a kind of a good look at, um, I wanted to be authentic, right? So I, I had to look at how I was trained and the methodology that was used in my, um, in, in my uh, formation as a, as a Pequita Tush instructor. So I wanted to lean heavily on that for that authenticity, I don't want to. I don't want to come out and say, "Hey, this is a curriculum," but that's not how I learned. You know, right. um, I wanted to be able to kind of um, uh, believe in what it was that you know that, that I was putting out there. But at the same time, it wasn't. I didn't comp- uh, structure-wise that you know we, I tried to structure things in that way. Some things I had to just kind of plug in, right? So there were some things that are in there that I learned later, but it fit as a logical progression. It fit. There, right? I didn't really fit there, and I, I, I mean, I think we've done a great job. And, and, and another thing I did is take into consideration um, input from um, other, uh, you know, like Tuhon Kit Asenas, You know, he's someone that I, I, you know, I rely heavily on his input, and, and so what, you know, we set we sat together many times, and um, and like, hey, you know, where do you think this should go? Where do you think this is okay? And and I think we've, we came up with a. I think we came up with a good um, structure uh, again, based and mostly based on how my learning progressions went as I as I, I came into Piketty Tosha. Um But at the same time, I don't, it's not perfect. There's things that, that are in there that I I'm not you know I'm completely happy with. I think maybe it could maybe this could go there a little bit. But for the most part, I think it's 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 pretty good considering. Um, teaching a, in a structured manner of that way is not something that you're going to get from Grand to
0: <laughs> Right. Right. And so
1: um, it's basically just trying to put some rhyme and uh, to rhyme and reason to the way to what he has taught and, and put some, some structure to it that makes some logical sense with regards to progression.
0: Well, and even uh, with teaching, like I started teaching in 2007 and, you know, I, I approached it looking at Leslie and what he was doing. It's like, okay, well, let me teach the way Leslie's teaching, and then I ended up meeting Rick Riera, and then it it just kind of, kind of changed over time. And and the thing that was real confusing to teach was uh, let's say something like the absidario. So you introduce the student to the absidario, and you you go through one, two, three, and four, and then you go into making contact. And that one, two, three, and four it isn't the same <laughs> as the one, two, three, and four uh, that you make contact with. But like I said. The way that you put together the program, I, I think it gets people moving a whole lot sooner. You know, um, the drills that you guys go through on on a Piquita University, you know, I, I think that uh, they make a whole lot of sense, man. I mean, so I just want to give you props for that. I like, I really like that that product.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and one, yeah, one thing, one thing that I think that that will more. Uh, enrich people's experience as they as they train on Piketty tershas and I try to make it clear in the introduction but it's something that if people just kind of keep in the back of their mind as they go through it but um, it's really um, what I would what I, and I call the, 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 the curriculum that we, we present there I call it the foundation and the framework of the of the art okay because um, it's there's a lot more and and we're trying to uh, find the time to put together, Additional videos to, to complement what is in the curriculum, um, but there's a lot more to the than what is. So I don't want people to think, hey, you know, this uh, these six levels, Yakan Isa through to Lakan Tatlaw. I don't want people to think that's all there is. But,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: if, if you're gonna, you know, if you want to build a, a, a strong house, you gotta have a strong foundation. You gotta have a strong framework.
0: Yeah, and there's yeah, I was I was gonna say and. And you're absolutely right. I mean, because there's things that you learn at the beginning that might not be uh, a part of the structure or the curriculum coming up. You know, so what I mean by that is uh, if you're training with someone like Grand Tuhan or whatever, you know, you might start out to where you're doing single stick. And, you know, the next day you're doing a spotty dog, you know, (laughs) And you're still trying to put together, you know, like, well, how the hell do I structure all of this? And I'm horrible at taking notes. I'm <laughs> i am bad at it because if I write something down today, I might not look at it again for like another five years. And then I'll read it and be like, what the hell was I talking about?
1: <laughs> I've, got, I've got notes that go back, you know, almost 30 years. And, I've, and I, some of them I, I actually, I, I've never actually, I've, I still have them, but I've never actually gone back and read them. But I think the process of just taking those notes helps you to remember a little bit more of what it is that you're, you learned that day, you know, but I've got notes from jujitsu classes. I got notes from Muay Thai classes. I've got, you know, um, volumes of Kali notes. And um, like I said, most of them, are, um, there are some that I've gone back and, and looked at. Um, I think in the, and, and, I've, and at some point I switched from written notes to um, word document notes. Um, but uh, this, um, and, and I think, I think when I switched to that is when, um, it became a lot easier to just video um, a mm-hmm. than, to, than to be writing all the notes. And then I would go back to the video and that's when I was typing out, you know, um, notes from the video. But um, yeah, that's. I think it's just the process of taking those notes that helps you to, to learn. It's, it's, I think it's a it's a part of the learning process and helps you to absorb what it is that you learned that day a little better.
0: So you were ahead of the learning curve, I shouldn't say learning curve, but the tech curve, man, you know, no one saw COVID-19 coming. No one saw Zoom training being a thing you know but you came up with this bikini university thing years ago i want to say was it been like three or four years three years ago yep. okay and you this program's massive i mean so how did you end up coming up with bikini university
1: you know yeah. So it was actually um I, I say it's been it's been online for three years so there was about uh, i want to say a good four or five years of preparation before it launched, and it, it was an idea that I had when we, at one of the uh, Asia-Pacific conferences in the Philippines, and we had all these different instructors there, uh, you know, and I and I um, would speak to the instructors, and I, was, and I would say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we were able to take some of the stuff that we're learning and put it into, uh, into that we're teaching, I should say, as, a, as you know, the different um, the different two ones that we're teaching at this event, and I, and I would, you know, just kind of run ideas by guys, said, you know, it would be cool if we able to do this and do that, and um, but you know, as it, when it starts coming down to um, execution of an idea, it just became really hard to to kind of coordinate something of that of that nature with the uh, people that live in different parts of the world. So I just kind of decided, to, I'm just going to do it, and um, I uh, started filming some some of the material. And um, you know, we, I got to the point, I found a platform to put it on, and I got to the point where I was like, you know. If I, don't, if I wait till this is perfect, it's never going to launch. So why don't I just do it and fix it on the way, you know? And so yeah, that's kind of that's what, I, yeah, that's what I, I did. And, and, uh, and you know, when COVID hit, it, 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 I had been online with Piketty University uh, two years. And so I had, uh, things were in motion. Um, I have to say it was uh, a, definitely a blessing because I, um, I, last year I had something like 40 seminars canceled. And, um, I was able to, uh, you know, that's a big hit to, 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 my, my, personally to my income. And so, right. um, I was able to try to switch gears. And once things started, you know, I realized these, these seminars and conferences are getting canceled throughout the year. I, I found more free time to focus a little bit more on, on, on creating, um, more content and, um, structure and, and marketing for Piketty P- university and, um, and even ended up last year launching. Um, TricomTraining.com, and so yeah, I, I was very fortunate that I um, was able, to, like you said, have the—I the, I don't know if you call it foresight, but um, uh, I, no one could have foreseen what the world was like today. But um, it, it was definitely a, a, a blessing to be able to have that in place to be able to sustain me as the, as you know, as the world started to shut down, you know, with travel and teaching and so on and so forth.
0: No, I, I I like it. Like I've said before, I like Piquiti University. And um, one of the main reasons is because I just like to see different ways that people present the art. You know, uh, I find that it's different instructor to instructor, you know, like we were talking about, because, you know, GT might have taught somebody a certain way that didn't teach you, you know. But in terms of uh, drilling and sparring, you know, what do you feel is like a fair balance?
1: Um, you know, <sighs> I, of the two, I'm not going to say they should be balanced. I think you should spend more time drilling than sparring, um, you know. Um, but I, don't, I, I, I should qualify that because, in other words, I don't. If I've got an hour of training, I don't. I'm not going to say structure your class so that you've got 30 minutes of drilling and 30 minutes of sparring. Okay, I, I, I wouldn't recommend that because it's going to take longer to people, for people in that format to start learning the, um, the skills that you're trying to build within Bikini Tertia to learn the art, to, to hammer down, their, their footwork and their strike mechanics. Um, you know, so I don't think it needs to be equal, but I think the sparring needs to be present. And within sparring, when you, when you do sparring, in a very short period of time, you learn some valuable things. Right? So, I think, I don't, uh, and, um, so I don't think that, like I said, the two need to be equal. Unless you're someone that has a lot of time on your hands, and maybe you're, you're doing two hours of drilling, Two hours aspiring a week still might be a bit excessive. So, so long as the aspiring is present mm-hmm. um, and that you are doing it, you know, maybe you know, um, you've got maybe uh, open, open, uh, open mat after class, so you do it, spend a half an hour aspiring, or maybe the last 10 15 minutes of your class is dedicated to some kind of aspiring progression or something. So, long as it's present and it's there, then it's valuable and you're going to glean important things that you're not going to be able to glean from the drills. Um, but the, you know, but uh, when I say drills, I'm not talking about flow drills exclusively. I'm talking about um, hammering in your your body mechanics um, and your you know uh, and and techniques, um, body mechanics and um, and flow drills and things of that nature uh, themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think sparring is essential sparring in, in its various forms. But um, but uh, yeah, it it, um, it shouldn't be. In my opinion, it shouldn't be the same amount of time, but as long as we're doing it.
0: How long before, uh, how long do you wait before you allow a student to spar? Cause I know different schools, they, they want guys to at least have a, a good understanding of, of range and timing and, and all of that, you know, just a, a basic understanding. You just don't want people going in there beating the hell out of one another because, you know, you, you're just teaching basically, uh, how to hit and <laughs> how to retaliate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, hit me, I'm going to hit them back. There's no, <laughs> there's no technique to it. or art yeah, to it. I,
1: I personally, I don't, I, um, when I, and that's kind of why I say sparring its various forms. So I'll actually start people early on, but just to, to yeah, but following some of the methodology that Grant Tuhon will follow, which is start guys off with distance sparring.
0: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't have any protective equipment. I don't need it. We're not making contact. I've got you know a knife or a stick, and we're moving, and I'm I'm actually observing a human being with a weapon that's moving also, and trying to make you know imaginary strikes at me, and I'm trying to and, and I'm moving and, and uh, uh, evading, and then I'm trying to you know strike at them, looking at specific targets, mindful distance firing, not just moving around and doing whatever while they're doing whatever, you know. Um, But actually, paying attention to to openings, to movement, and whatnot, and um, so distance sparring is something that I'll I like to start people off with. It it kind of eases people into you know uh, based on the comfort level they might have. Then you know I'll uh, from there I'll get people sparring with um, with padded weaponry, get them you know with whatever necessary uh, protective equipment you might use for padded weaponry until I get them into a a situation where you might be sparring with rattan sticks and fencing helmets, hockey gloves. And even then, it'll start off in progressions, you know, kind of, it might be just specifying what the targets are, and might be specifying particular ranges and footwork and, and whatnot. Um, and then just making sure that it doesn't evolve into this just kind of like, okay, I'm running around hitting at you, you're running around here at me, but we're not really um, strategizing. Right. So it kind of defeats the purpose, in my opinion, of the sparring, um, which is learning how to um, implement, implement the tactics that you've been training. And um, and do it with respect for the weapon that you're facing, right? And so if I if I you know if if you've got someone that comes into the and I've seen it uh, a million times, you know uh, where you've got someone that they don't even swing the stick well. They don't their striking sucks, right? The, The timing, their accuracy sucks. So what they do is they'll kind of weather a couple of strikes because they've got you know helmets on and whatnot, and they'll get into a clinch. And now they're getting to a range where they've actually got some experience and. It kind of takes a, it turns it into a um, uh, more sportive, uh, more of a you know sportive game than an actual um, uh, enhancement of combat skill. When people are doing things um, that they sh- that they wouldn't be doing in the absence of helmets and gloves and and, and the presence of blades and things of that nature. So, as so long as it's, you're keeping in the context and you're not creating training scars, you know, um, and you know that training scars is all relative. to Why are you doing this? Why are you sparring? You know, if, it, if it's to learn combative skill sets, then yeah, you could learn some bad habits if you're not doing it right. If it's just to have fun and you don't really care about learning some combative skill, then, you yeah, know, then, then by all means, just have fun, you know, but, um, uh, you know, staying true to the Piketty Tertia Ethos we try and keep the, the, the combative uh, application of, of it in there. And, and I think it's, it's important to pay attention to those things.
0: I wanted to circle back real quick to uh, Pakita University. One thing that I forgot to ask about is like the grading. So I know that you have like all these different levels, um, on through the on levels. You know, how do you guys end up evaluating the grading? I mean, is it something that I guess people could send vid- send videos in, you look at them or do they have to have someone hands on uh, in a nearby city or state to to, to look at them?
1: Yeah, so the way that we originally set it up is um, the first three levels. So we've got Yakan 1, 2, 3, and then we've mm-hmm. got Lakan 1, 2, 3. So the first three levels, uh, we, what we do is uh, we allow people to, to um, grade through those levels remotely. So uh, we connect uh, the student. If, if they want to be participate in the grading, we connect them with what we call a Gabay. Gabay in Tagalog means a, a guide. It's literally what it means. So someone to kind of guide them on their path. So we we connect them with a gabai who is usually um, someone of mata as Guru or higher rank within the PTTA, and um, and that and then what they'll do is they'll correlate with that gabai through online video correlation um, and just demonstrating that they have learned you know what's what the different techniques in the in the curriculum. And um, and that's, uh, you know, and so we, we've allowed people to go through the Yakka levels that way. We, we wouldn't let them, um, in the original format, we wouldn't let people move past, you know, third level um, uh, through, um, you know, through online correlation. Outside of a couple of exceptions and, and so a couple of those exceptions that we've found, and then this this has kind of been a learning curve for us as we've been doing this, but we found that we've had people, two, kind of two types of people that we've had to accommodate based on um, advanced skill levels and one is um, someone that came from Kitty Tersha you know um, that has been training in, in this may be under a, a different organization or, or someone that wasn't part of the PTTA but this person has a, a legitimate rank you know Lakanguru Mata Asma Guru, Agalon whatever and so we, we have what we call a, a lateral rank recognition program so what we do is Tu um, hon Kit administers it himself. And those people will do the video correlation of the entire curriculum uh, um, with Tuhon Kit just to, just, to sh- just to show that they know. Because we, we don't want to give them a, a, a rank recognition in our association if they aren't familiar with our curriculum. So just to make sure that they know the curriculum. And then as soon as they do that, then we we basically uh, acknowledge and, and give them a certificate of the rank that they already have in Piketty Tersha, but issued also from the PTTA. So it's just a way of kind of giving um, uh, what we call a lateral rank recognition program. Um, The other one we've we've had to deal with on a number of occasions is people that come from other Filipino martial arts. We've got instructors from Inosanto Kali, FCS Kali, um, Balintawak, and and so on and so forth, and they come in with this great skill set. And so they're learning the curriculum really fast because the mechanics are mostly there. There may be some small differences here and there, but they're learning them. And so we have what we call a, a fast track program um, and that will, the Fast Track program, they're able to do uh, online grading through to um, the highest rank of, that's in the, in, the, in the base curriculum, um, LACAM 3. And then we will um, promote them to Lakanguru in person at the first opportunity that they're able to attend, you know, um, uh, an event where we've got someone that's got the authority to, to promote them to that level. So we've got the fast track program, the lateral program, and then you know just the, the base program for regular students.
0: So is PTTA, is it in all 50 states here in the United States?
1: No, no, there's, there's several states that, we, that we're not present. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's. it's Based on how much um, Bikini University has, has helped to facilitate growth, I actually don't know how many states that that we are present, but um, but I know it's not all fifty. There's a number of states that we uh, we're not present in, at least in any official capacity.
0: Okay, and I know that you're a New Zealander. Yep. Um, have you had an opportunity to uh, to share the art down home or no?
1: A few times. Um, so we've got there's a, there's a uh, an instructor down in, in auckland new zealand is new, new zealand's largest city and uh he's from um, south africa damien Halfordy. and um damien uh contacted me this is <laughs> gosh this was in the late 2000s and uh he was like hey you know i know you're from new zealand like you know if you're ever back down here can you come to my school and do a seminar so uh, actually, no, I take that back. The first time we trained together, uh, I was in Hawaii for um, on, a, on a fairly regular basis back then. And he, um, I think this was must have been in the early, uh, the late two thousands. And he came to Hawaii and met with me to do some personal training. Um, and so we spent, you know, a good part of a week doing personal training there. And then after that, I started doing seminars at his school in New Zealand. So um, I haven't been back there for um, you know six years now. So it's unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the, I have work uh, around the world um, that takes me all over the place, but unfortunately not uh, from back to my my home country, but uh, I, I do uh, have done a few seminars there in, in Auckland and, and I've had a lot of people contact me over there, especially recently that want to do seminars down in New Zealand just as soon as I'm, I get back there. I was supposed to be there now, actually. It's just the pandemic canceled a big family reunion that I had, um, oh, but yeah. I was going to do a bunch of seminars while I was there. So hopefully next year.
0: OK, well, we're coming into the home stretch of, of this interview and uh, I like to have fun, you know, so these next questions are kind of silly, but um, they're fun. OK, uh, so <laughs> three people dead or alive that you'd want to train with.
1: OK. Um, I'd have to say. um comrade total. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Z1, that would be a very interesting uh, person to train with. Um, I, I'm going to add on to your. Um, I'm going to add on to your dead or alive, and maybe um, 30, 40 years ago, Grant uh, Tumon 30 or 40 years ago, or someone I yeah, would love to. That's,
0: that's yeah. a good call.
1: <laughs> Go back and train with. Um, and I'm uh, trying to think on the last one, um, Miyamoto Musashi.
0: Those are those are solid. And I've never I've never had a conversation about this. I just asked the questions. Uh, but Comrado, I would be interested to train with him. And the reason why I'd be interested, I'd want to see if Piquiti really as complicated as we've made it over the years. <laughs> you know, who knows? He might be like, no, it's just footwork and ones and twos. That's all you need. <laughs> sure. Yeah, a, a young a young GT. Um, I've known several people personally that uh, had an opportunity to train with him early on, like in the '80s. You know, uh, Rick Riera he caught him in 1983, and Rob Slomkowski caught GT in '82, and uh, they were like, he he was just amazing. You know, uh, at that point, I want to say he was maybe what 50 years old or four, in his late 40s.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, 80s. Yeah,
0: he would have tried to to do my math there. But yeah, about that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Ricky, he trained with a GT over in a town here called Big Springs, Big Springs, Texas. And uh, he said, look, man, he would take us on the blacktop, make us take our shirts off. We'd bear crawl and we'd be doing crunches on the hot asphalt. And, you know, the next day he would invite us over for a barbecue. He'd make us eat. We sit there, we'd be eating, and then when we got full, he'd be like throwing out the headgear and the sticks and make you fight. <laughs> I yeah.
1: I can believe it easily.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was a maniac. He still is. Still is a maniac. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to close this out with my 10 questions, man. And these are rapid fire. Are you familiar with, um, what was it called? Inside the Actor Studio it was an old show that used to come on uh, AMC or something. One of those mm-hmm. shows, our wow. channel. Okay. Well, anyways, these are rapid fire questions, and they're. My version of uh, of those. So the first question is, what's your favorite weapons category? Blades. Your least favorite.
1: Uh, project uh, bow and arrows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about the FMA?
1: Um, the 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 multi the the, the um uh, it's not the word I'm looking for but the, how multifaceted it is.
0: Okay. What turns you off about the FMA?
1: Uh, Politics.
0: What do you love to do besides train?
1: Uh, Spend time with family.
0: What do you hate?
1: Um, what do I hate? I hate. um,
0: uh, uh, I I hate. um, uh, It could be. it, you could say you could say Brussels sprouts, man. It don't matter.
1: <laughs> I hate things that go against a good Christian principles.
0: Okay, what's your favorite curse word? Um, freak. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> what martial art besides the FMA would you like to try?
1: Um, besides the F- um, the. the- try or something that i've already done something i've never done
0: yeah something you've never done
1: um sambo
0: okay what martial art would you not want to try
1: mm, tai chi okay
0: when it's all said and done what do you want your martial legacy to be
1: um it's all said and done uh, someone that inspired people to um to be their best within the art
0: Okay, well, Jared, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Uh, before we uh, turn everything off and close out, do you have anything coming up?
1: Uh, yeah, we've got a number of um, number of events coming up uh, in the um, you know the next, next well this year. Some of them are uh, tentative based on uh, pandemic restrictions, but um, we've got a uh, I'm trying to think. Down in Los Angeles area, I've got a uh, two day Tricom course April. The weekend of april three and four i think it is it's saturday sunday uh no it's a friday saturday and uh that's the next one that'll be coming up um we've got um a tricon course five-day course at the wyoming state police academy in april got a event with chad lyman from Code for concepts coming up a two-day event here in utah and um in april and uh, uh seminar in um in indiana in uh, may so those, i think between now and um trying to think if I'm missing anything, but between now, oh, there's another, there's a cool event, we're rescheduling it, because uh a couple of factors, but cool event that we're going to be doing here in Utah, there's a, a local guy who was one of the winners on Forged and Fire, and we're going to do a two-day event where guys will come in and, and basically forge their own live blade and their own trainer, and then on the second day, I'll give them some training and how to use it, so that's, uh, it was scheduled for next month, we're going to probably bump it back to um, a month or so. Uh, oh, and later on this year, um, we've got, uh, you know, um, a couple things. One is our a big event in, in Las Vegas, which is going to be myself and Tuhin Bill mcgrath oh, going nice, going nice. The, the, the PTK Brotherhood Seminar. And, uh, that's going to be a first of its kind. It's going to be real cool to see, you know, the, um, you know, gener- the uh, the the generation one of Piketty Tertia kind of um, doing teaching alongside gener- the 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 second second wave, the second generation of Piketty Tertia. So it'll be a great event. I've got you know if if if, if restrictions um, start to lighten up, I, I have a, a, a PTTA Europe conference scheduled in Spain also in September um and which is always an awesome time beautiful beach on andalusia coast this again it's um you know, europe has um uh, different types of restrictions than we have here so hopefully it'll be open up and that will continue also and and then if restrictions are open in late november early december we will be doing a camp in the philippines
0: too so. oh nice 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 so if anybody wants to get in contact with you in regards to piqueti university or reach out for uh, law enforcement training or you know regular training how can they get a hold of you
1: yeah so this you know there's three websites really that will, they could get to me um, through one is Jared Wehomie.com, my first and last name.com um, the other one is teampikitty.com. and then uh, they could also go to survivaledgetactical.com. and that's the, the the company that I do a lot of my police military training through
0: all right awesome man I appreciate you coming on the show Jared
1: my pleasure i appreciate it. I appreciate the invite yep hopefully we'll be able to do it again one day so thank, yeah, you. thank you so much
0: all right thank you man thank you for listening to our show subscribe rate share leave a review and follow us on facebook and instagram at south texas Collie. until next time stay safe and train hard peace